Open your Bibles to Joshua chapter 5. Let's start verse 1, and let's read from 1 uh, to verse 8. Now, when all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings along the coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites until we had crossed over, their hearts melted and they no longer had the courage to face the Israelites. Well, actually, let's stop there. It's amazing what fear will do to us. Because of what happened, they were afraid of the Israelites and they no longer had courage. You know, what, what happened to these people when they saw the children of Israel cross over the Jordan and they were like, oh man, it, how can we stand against this? How can we confront this? Have you ever been in a situation where it seemed overwhelming and courage leaves you? I remember when I was coaching Little League and, you know, you are up against the, the premier team. You know, this is the, the number one team in, in Little League and you got these little, you know, like 10 to 12 year old boys there and you see the pitcher warming up on the other team and he's six foot tall, 12 years old and has a mustache, you know, and, and, and the kid and he's throwing the ball, you know, 80 miles an hour at 60 feet and the kids are like, oh my gosh, you know, we can't stand up against this guy. And, you know, pretty soon they're talking amongst themselves. They go, oh, we're going to lose. And it's like, you know, guys, stop it, you know. This, that's not going to help you to go in the batter's box thinking I'm going to lose. You know, you have to have courage to go in there and face that. And when you lose courage, you lose the ability to, to step into that. Now, think about this. If you lose courage because of something, what, what do you do when you gain courage because you are on the winning team? The children of Israel cross over. The Lord was with them. God had done amazing things. They've got the ace pitcher. They've got Kobe and Lamar James, you know, on the same team. It's like, you've got it all. You cannot lose. What should that do to us? It should push us into that place that God wants to take us. Instead of being afraid, instead of not having courage, the opposite should take place. We should be saying, we can go. Why? Because God is with us. If God is for you, who can be against you, Paul says in Romans 8. And so the children of Israel are stepping into this place. The nations around them are afraid because of these things. But if we trust in the Lord, then we shouldn't be afraid. Psalm 118, verses 4 and 7, it says, Let those who fear the Lord say, His love endures forever. In my anguish, I cried to the Lord, and he answered by setting me free. The Lord is with me. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? The Lord is with me. He is my helper. I will look in triumph on my enemies. The Lord is with me. I will not be afraid. I will look in triumph of my enemies. What enemies are you facing? Are you looking in triumph, or are you suffering from the Eeyore syndrome? Oh dear, I can't get past this one. There's no hope for me. 
and we're already defeated. And I love in that psalm because it says, let those who fear the Lord say his love endures forever. You see, when you fear God, his love casts out every other fear. When you fear the Lord, he takes care of all your other fears. But if you fear everything else, it's because you don't first acknowledge God. And so the fear of the Lord is where we begin. It's the beginning of wisdom and it's the beginning of the relationship of a God who loves us. When you have respect, reverence, submission to God, he casts out every other fear. It's the only fear that when you draw near to it, sets you free. Every other fear brings bondage. And so the fear of the Lord actually sets us free. And so the psalmist starts off when he fears the Lord, then he doesn't need to be afraid of anything else. And we need to remember that and take that to heart. Now let's start in verse two. It says, at that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcised the Israelites again. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the Israelites, Israelites at Gibeoth Haroth. I just love it. It just says a verse and it makes it sound real simple, but that had to be something. Now, this is why he did so. All those who came out of Egypt, all the men of military age died in the desert on the way after leaving Egypt. All the people that came out had been circumcised. But all the people born in the desert during the journey from Egypt had not. The Israelites had moved about in the desert 40 years until all the men who were of military age when they left Egypt had died, since they had not obeyed the Lord. For the Lord had sworn to them that they would not see the land that they had solemnly promised to the father, their fathers to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So he raised up their sons in their place. And these were the ones Joshua circumcised. They were still uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. And after the whole nation had been circumcised, they remained where they were in camp until they were healed. Okay. Why is this taking place and what's the significance here? The circumcision was a covenant. It was an agreement that God made with Abraham a sign signifying that you and I have made this agreement. It was their covenant with one another. That covenant was to be his descendants and follow after them to show that God was with him. We hear that when they went into Egypt, especially after Kadesh Barnea, where they rebelled against Moses and where they rebelled against Joshua, Joshua and Caleb had come back from the land, had given a good report said, the land is good, we can go there, we can take it. Ten others said, no, it's filled with giants, we're going to get wiped out. And the people murmured and rose up against Moses, and God took care of a bunch of them. And at that point, he said, you won't enter into the land. And from that point on, circumcision didn't take place. Now, why? Because they did not follow the agreement with God. God did not make the covenant or show the covenant with those people who were in rebellion. The covenant was to belong to those who recognized the agreement that they made with God. And so these people in the wilderness didn't have that covenant with God. 
And so God tells Moses, or Joshua, I want you to reestablish this agreement with the people. Now, what I love about this too is that Joshua's priorities are right. He doesn't just go off into battle. First, he gets right with the Lord. First, he sets things up so that he is right between he and God. Before you go into the battle, you need to take care of these things. You, you see, no one ever loses anything of lasting value when they first seek the kingdom of God. And when Joshua had his priorities right, okay, guys, we're here. We're going to make this covenant again with God. We're going to acknowledge that we belong to him. We are descendants of Abraham. He has promised this land to us. This was his agreement to us, and we're going to fulfill it. Before we go off and march into battle, we're going to take care of first things first, and that's our agreement and our commitment to God. And that's always to be the case with us. The first relationship we need is with God. The first commitment and commitment we have is to God. It comes before anything else, before work, before our family, before our friends. Where are we with the Lord? Where is that relationship with God? And so they enter into this land of promise that represents for us the spirit-filled life as a Christian. What's the first thing that has to happen? We have to have that recognition. Remember the covenant. Remember what God has promised us, who we are. We belong to him. He is our God. And so they establish these things right off the, the beginning. His priorities are right. Standing with God is more important than military planning. And so when this is taken care of, then he moves on. In verse 9, he says, The Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the place has been called Gilgal, which we talked about Sunday. It means to roll or wheel to this day. What a beautiful thing. I mean, that verse is just powerful when the Lord says, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. Egypt being a type of bondage where they were slaves. You know, Jesus has set us free. He has rolled away our reproach. Think about that. Our reproach has been dealt with. Today I have rolled it away. That should just flood our souls with joy. The reproach has been rolled away. When Christ died, the, the veil was torn. Access to God was made available. The reproach was taken away. We now have fellowship with the living God because of Jesus, because he took our reproach away. What a great thing. What a great thing. And, you know, Gilgal. We all need Gilgal in our lives, that place where we remember God has rolled this away. He's taking care of it. Verse 10, he goes on and he says, on the evening of the 14th day of the month, while camped at Gilgal, on the Passover, the day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened bread and roasted grain. The manna stopped the day after. They ate this food from the land. There was no longer any manna for the Israelites, but that year they ate of the produce of Canaan. There's three times that the Passover was celebrated with the nation of Israel. It happened in Exodus before they went into the wilderness when God delivered them. It happened in Numbers chapter 9 and it's happening here. And it's a celebration. The Passover is a remembrance of the past and it's often 
the remembering of what God did is a great preparation for what God is going to do. When we remember what God is, has done, it helps us not fall into the pit when we're going forward in what God is going to do because we are aware already of what he's done. And so the Passover was this celebration of remembering how God had delivered them from Egypt. The firstborn was taken from those who did not have the blood on the doorposts and on the lentil, how the angel of death passed over. And they remembered that, and they are remembering again how God delivered them. And what a great thing it is to move forward and to have the memory of God delivering us. It's a great thing. The manna was given when they could not provide for themselves. In the desert wandering, God took care of them. But when they could provide for themselves, the manna stopped. That's true with us. God will take care of us. When we are at a place where we cannot help ourselves, God will help us. But then there comes a place where we need to step in and do something and God says, okay, now you need to take care of this. And God is willing to, to step in and take care of us when we can't do something, but then expects us to do what we can do when we can do it. We talked about that Sunday too, how it's time to grow up. It's time to step into this new life. The manna no longer is there for you, but now you've got to plant, you've got to water, you've got to cultivate, and you've got to produce the food that you're going to eat. It's time to grow up. And so they're moving on from this place and they get to the new land and they eat the produce of Canaan. Verse 13 says, Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. After they celebrate the Passover, they are ceremonially clean, they are circumcised, they remember the Lord, and Joshua goes on a little reconnaissance mission, heading over towards Jericho, scouting out the land. And I can imagine Joshua thinking, I wonder how tall you know, the ladders have to be. We're going to have to get some catapults. You know, how thick are those walls? And I could just see the general planning. And as he's, you know, scouting and looking things over, he encounters this person. Now, we believe this to be a manifestation of Jesus, what's called a Christophany. And the reason we believe this is Jesus, before his actual birth, is because Joshua bows down and shows him worship. And we don't see that with angels, but we see that with God. Jesus, when he was being tempted and Satan tempted him, says, if you will bow down and worship me, he says, you shall worship the Lord God and him alone will you serve. You only worship God. You don't worship anyone else. In Revelation, when John fell down before an angel, the angel picked him up and said, don't do that. Don't worship me. You only worship the Lord. Same thing happened with Peter in Acts when they fell down to worship him. He said, no, I'm just a man. You don't worship anyone but God, but here this being receives worship. And so we believe that he is indeed the Lord. Now, what's neat about this is Joshua's encounter with the commander of the Lord, he surrenders his command. Who's in charge here? Joshua's the general until he meets 
the big general. And then he says, okay, it's yours. And isn't that true for us? You know, we're in charge of our lives and we're doing things and then the Lord comes along and he says, who's in charge? And we have to say, you are. We have to bow our knee. We have to surrender our worship to Jesus, King Jesus as well. Philippians 2, 9 and 11, it says, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We all have to bow our knee to the commander of the Lord's army. And what's powerful about this scripture in Philippians is it's actually a quote from Isaiah. And when Isaiah presents this scripture, it is about Jehovah God. But here it is about Jesus. They are the same. You only worship God. Jesus receives worship. Jesus is God. And so he comes before the Lord and he surrenders his command. He surrenders it to him and he, he you know, asks, I love that, you know, whose side are you on? He says, no, I'm not on your side. I'm not on their side, neither. I am here as a commander of the Lord. And Joshua's response is great. He falls to the ground in reverence and says, what does my Lord have for his servant? What do you want me to do? And we all have to come to that place where we bow our knees before Jesus and we say, Jesus, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to live? And then we see that he tells him to take his sandals off for the place that he's standing on holy ground. I, I touched on that again Sunday. If you weren't here, I encourage you to go online and, and get the study. But, you know, we've often thought that removing the sandals was, a, a, in a sense showing respect and in, in almost separating us from God. And, you know, if you go into a pagoda or a mosque, you have to take off your sandals because the idea is you don't bring the, the dirt that is in the outside world into this place of worship. And so we think, okay, yeah, you, you know, you take off the, the filthiness there and you leave it outside and you come into the place of worship. But they're outside. He's on dirt, Okay, he's not leaving dirt behind. He's not moving into a, a, a different place. He is there on the dirt. So the dirt on the bottom of your sandals is already the dirt that is on the ground. And so what, what God seems to be doing is be eliminating anything that is between you and his holiness. Remove your sandals. The place you are on is holy ground. In other words, I want your reverence. I want you to recognize my holiness and I want it to touch your life. And I just believe that's a, a beautiful picture of what God is doing. He's not pushing Joshua further, but he's actually drawing him closer. Go on in, in verse or chapter six. We're actually going to try and go over two chapters tonight. Let's read verses 1 through 5. Now Jericho was tightly shut up because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands along with its kings and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carrying trumpets of rams, horns in front of the ark. 
On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have all the people give a loud shout, then the wall of the city will collapse and the people will go up, every man straight in. God now gives his strategy. And I've got to tell you, what would you be thinking if this was God's strategy? I really kind of like the catapult idea, God, you know, that, that one was working for me. You know, this idea of walking around the city seven times, just not feeling it. I'm not sure exactly what you're trying to do. It, it, it seems non-productive to me. It seems, well, even a little bit foolish. First Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, it says, Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. God uses the foolish things to confound the wise that no one can boast. There ain't no way you're going to boast in this. This is all about God. This is all about what God is doing, and you have to trust and rely on him. It's an interesting observation that before they encounter the commander of the Lord, they ceremonially follow the law with the circumcision and the Passover. Now that they've encountered the commander of the Lord, they actually go outside of the law because on the Sabbath day they are not supposed to work they're not supposed to be moving around and they go around on the Sabbath day actually seven times. They are not supposed to take the ark out into battle. But you see, once you encounter Jesus, he is the fulfillment of the law. And so now the law has taken on a different role because the commander of the Lord is with them. Jesus is with them. They don't observe the Sabbath now because Jesus, the commander of the Lord, is there with them. And he is the fulfillment of the Sabbath. And so they are actually able to do more and go beyond what they would have been able to without the commander there. But because he is there with them, they are able now to, to do more and to engage more into this battle and the things that are there before them. And, you know, when God asks us to do something, sometimes it seems foolish or impossible. And we think, I, I can't do that. I'm, I'm not good at that. I'm not qualified at that. Maybe the Lord is telling us, well, I want you to, to talk or share with this person. And it's like, well, God, you know, they're pretty educated and I'm not very educated and I, I'm afraid to enter into that place. I don't know what to do and it just seems foolish. What are they going to think? Well, the whole idea of chapter uh, one of Corinthians is talking about the foolishness of preaching that God has used that to reach the world. And the foolish things are us. The things to be despised, that's us. Not many of us are noble. Not many of us are in very good standards, if any of us. And God wants to use us, the foolish things, to step in and confound the world around us. 
And to think that God has entrusted the power of his message to you and to me. That's as foolish as it gets. It really is. The power of the gospel is entrusted to us. The power of God, salvation through Jesus Christ, has been given to us to take to the world. And Paul says in Corinthians, it is foolishness. But God is going to use the foolishness to confound the world around us. So what are we going to do? Again, what, what are we seeing? Where are our eyes? Are we seeing the commander of the Lord with us? Or do we just see the walls? It goes on. Verse 6. We see God's strategy. Now we see the mission that God puts them on. So Joshua, son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, you've got to wonder how this conversation went, Okay. I've heard from God. Okay, all right, what's the battle plan, Joshua? Here's what we're going to do, people. Take up the Ark of the Covenant. Okay, okay, I'm with you. The Lord and the seven priests carrying trumpets in front of it. Okay, getting ready for battle. The Lord's going before us. I mean, just, I don't know. This is how I see it, okay? And he ordered the people, advance, march around the city with the armed guard going ahead of the Ark of the Lord. And when Joshua had spoken to the people... The seven priests carrying the seven trumpets before the Lord went forward, blowing their trumpets, and the ark of the Lord's covenant followed them. The armed guard marched ahead of the priests who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard followed the ark. All this time the trumpets were sounding, but Joshua had commanded the people, Do not give a war cry, do not raise your voice, do not say a word, until the day I tell you to shout, then shout. So he had the ark of the Lord carried around the city, circling it once. Then the people returned to camp. That's it. And went, spent the night there. Joshua got up early the next morning, and the priests took the ark of the Lord. The seven priests carrying the seven trumpets went forward, marching before the ark of the Lord and blowing the trumpets. The armed men went ahead of them, and the rear guard followed the ark of the Lord. While the trumpets kept sounding, so on the second day they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. They did this for six days. Six days. March around the walls. Why is God doing this? Well, we don't know for sure. I mean, we don't know what... It doesn't really tell us. It just tells us to do... It tells them to do that. And you know, obedience is like that sometimes. We don't really know why. But God has asked us to live this way. He's asked us to do this. He's asked us to take on this role in the world around us. And we need to be obedient. And I imagine walking around a fortified city with nothing but maybe a sword and a spear and seeing these giant walls. And you march around it and maybe you're thinking, well, we're looking for weaknesses. We're looking for crevices, cracks. We're, we're looking for a place where we're going to go there. And you walk around at one. Did you guys see anything? No, I didn't see anything. It looked pretty solid to me. Yeah, me too. And they're doing that the next day, and the next day, and the next day, and the next day, and the next day. And you probably get back to the camp and say, you know what? There is no way we are getting inside that city. I have seen nothing it's 
how are we supposed to do this? No one's making any, you know, battering rams. We have no other plan. We're just walking around the city. And they get to this place where they just say, okay, I don't know what else we're supposed to do. I'm not sure how we're supposed to do this, but that's what we're supposed to do. Verse 15, it says, On the seventh day, they got up at daybreak and marched around the city seven times. They'd already seen the walls. They're going to see them again. Seven times. They marched around the city seven times in the same manner, except on that day, they circled the city seven times. The seventh time around, when the priest sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall be spared, because she hid the spies we sent. But keep away from the devoted things, so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them, Otherwise, you will, be, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring, bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold and articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. And so he gives them the, the guidelines of what's supposed to be happening here. And he tells them what to do as they're going to shout and the walls are going to come down. When the trumpet sounded, the people shouted, and at the sound of the trumpet, when the people gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. So every man charged straight in, and they took the city. The devoted, they devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword everything living in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, Go into the prostitute's house and bring her out and all who belong to her in accordance with your oath to her. So the young men who had done the spying went in and brought out Rahab, her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. They brought out the entire family and put them in a place outside the camp of Israel. Then they burned the whole city and everything in it. They put the silver and the gold and the articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord's house, but Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her because she hid the men Joshua sent to spy to Jericho. And she lives among the Israelites to this day. God did it. They were obedient and God did what they didn't think could be done. We saw in 2 Kings when the Syrian army was surrounding Elisha and Elisha prayed that his servant was, his eyes would be opened, that he would see. And he saw that the chariots of the Lord were surrounding them, that God was indeed with them. And you just imagine that God's army was there and he just collapsed the walls of Jericho. What could not be done by men was done by God. I, I don't think there's anything else you could say but something supernatural that was done. I don't think it was the vibration of the trumpets that caused the walls to collapse. I mean, I've heard some silly things, you know, on if you watch the History Channel or any of those things, it's like, what, you kidding me? You know, it's like, you know what would have to happen for that? I mean, do you know how loud that would have to be? I mean, there, 
without amplification, you know, well, it's just the right frequency and it causes... No, that's stupid. It's amazing what you would believe if, if you don't have faith in God. But the invisible hand of God did a powerful work. And what could not be done by man's hands was done by God's hand. Just as God said he would do it. And, you know, as the children of Israel were walking around the city, I believe God was doing a work in their heart. I believe that as they saw the walls, that they were impenetrable. They also believed in the God who got them across the river that was also uncrossable. That they remembered the hand of the Lord and, and the things that they had done. And again, they had sanctified themselves with the circumcision. They have prepared themselves with the Passover. They were mindful of the things of God and God was doing a work in their hearts as they saw the impossibility in front of them. There was the God of the impossible with them. What, what wall stands before us that's impossible? Maybe it's something inward you know maybe it's a vice that we have maybe it's a, a habit that we've had for so many years and we just seem can't seem to get past it and this turmoil that is within us and it's like Jericho there and we see it and we can't get past it or maybe it's something outward it's a financial situation it's a you know a health issue it's something that just seems insurmountable And we come to this wall and we say, I, I can't get past it. And then God stirs our hearts. And he reminds us that he is with us. He reminds us that he is for us. He reminds us that he will never leave us, that he will never forsake us. He reminds us that I've begun a work in you. I will complete it. Do we understand that? He's begun something in each of us and he is not going to stop until it is done. So wherever we are at in our walk, in our relationship with him, he has not given up, will not given up, and he will see us through. Whatever wall is there, God will take care of it. And we have to look past the wall and we have to see our God who is bigger, who is greater, was able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond what we can ask or think. And he wants to do that in our lives. He wants to do that in each of our lives. And we need to allow him that. Now, another thing that's a difficult thing to, to grasp hold of here is they are to wipe out everyone who is in the city. Men, women, and young and old, and even the cattle. And, and we think, why that, you know, that just doesn't seem nice. We need to remember that the psalmist declared in Psalm 24 that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The earth belongs to God. What is God supposed to do with wickedness that is in his land and that needs to be occupied by his people? Does he allow the wickedness to continue? We saw previously that the Lord was waiting for the time of the Amorites the sin of the Amorites was fulfilled. 
or was complete, that their time, it had gotten bad enough. We know a little bit about their practices, their human sacrifices, a lot of evil things, and apparently it was bad enough. And God said, go in there. Now, each time these this nation circled and the ark was there, which represented God, each time it circled that place, they had opportunity, just like Rahab did, to surrender. God had given Rahab an escape. I believe God gives everyone an escape. But it says that the gate was shut up. That they had closed the gates not to allow anything to come in. And you see what they really needed was to open the gates and say, you guys, you can come in. We will give this to you. We surrender to the Lord. Just like Rahab did, we will surrender. God who is rich in mercy. But you see, they shut out the Lord and what they needed to do is let the gates down and say, it's okay. We see God is with you. And as it would march around, they had an opportunity every day to make that choice. And when they didn't make the choice, the judgment fell. And the judgment's going to come. One day judgment will fall. Whether it's when we die, when it's when the Lord returns, judgment is coming. And the Lord is circling. And we have opportunity to either shut the gates or to let them down. We can be like the people inside Jericho who refused or like Rahab who submitted. The choice is ours. And it's important that we recognize that because that's where they were and what happened because of that. Now, there's a part here too that he talks about the dedicated thing and he's talking about all the gold, the silver, the bronze, the things that were of value. He said, don't touch those things. They belong to the Lord. Rightfully so. Who, who won the battle? The Lord. You know, so why should they profit from what the Lord did? And Lord was establishing the nation. He was trying to develop what was going to be later to come. And this is an important thing because we're going to see this come into play later on as we continue through the book. But these things are dedicated to the Lord and it's important. God is trying to establish something in the hearts of the people. I'm going before you. I am working. I'm establishing. And I have a right to the spoils, if you were, the, the first fruits of this conquest belong to me. And that's the idea of what we give to the Lord. We give him the first fruits or we give him, you know, the things that belong to him that we surrender to God. Why? Because they belong to him. God had provided for them, was still providing for them, but he says, those things belong to me. And so they're to be sanctified and set apart from the treasury into the treasury of the house of the Lord. Verse 26 says, at that time, Joshua pronounced this solemn oath, cursed before the Lord is the man who undertakes to rebuild this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn son, will he lay its foundations. At the cost of his youngest, will he set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua and his fame spread throughout the land. Joshua closes with a curse if anyone is going to rebuild this city. I think there are times when God does something in our life that is victorious. And we start rebuilding the walls. The things that God has torn down, we start rebuilding. God has delivered us from something. Maybe it's even a relationship or 
uh, a habit and we start rebuilding it, start investing in it again. And we find our lives cursed. We find that we start distancing ourselves from the Lord. We, we find that the enjoyment and fellowship that we had is no longer there. Why? Because we started rebuilding the wall. We started putting those things back up that now are in between us and God. And we need to be careful that we don't build up what God has torn down. That we don't find ourselves on, on the wrong side fighting against God. And I think it's easy to do in a lot of areas in our lives. It's easy to put our effort in things that aren't healthy for us, that aren't good for us, compromising, and it's building up that wall again. Because that's kind of what Jericho just seems to stand for, is it's the enemy. It's the, that spiritual battle that we're in. You know, in 2 Corinthians 10.4, it says, The weapons we fight with are not weapons of the world. On the contrary, they are, have divine power to demolish strongholds. They're not carnal, but they're mighty in God. To demolish strongholds. And those strongholds can be in our life. They can be a, a habit that becomes an addiction. They, they can be a propensity towards some kind of sin. They could be so many things. And God demolishes those things in our lives and then we start dabbling in them again. Start just playing with them a little bit. And next thing we know, they have us captive again. And they start just rooting within our lives. And it's something that if we don't recognize, we build up those walls again. And we don't want that to take place. And we want to make sure that the blessings of God stay in our lives. And so to do that, we need to be obedient. We need to surrender the spoils to God of our lives and not rebuild the walls. And it's a, a lesson for us to learn. And verse 27, it concludes just saying that Joshua's fame spread throughout the land. I imagine this would get around. What happened to Jericho? It's just a bunch of rubble now. How'd that happen? You wouldn't believe it. <laughs> you won't believe it if I tell you. Why? Because God is with them. And the same thing is true with us. Uh, the center of this chapter is really the ark that circled the city. The ark is mentioned 11 times in this chapter. The ark is the presence of God. And what the commander of the Lord's army did was he said, God is going to circle and take care of this battle. Again, the ark was not supposed to go to battle, but it did this one. Why? Because the commander was there. And he wanted to show up strong. And he wanted to make a point not only for them, but I believe for us. And so the presence of God needs to be central in our lives. I was thinking today, just a few things have happened this week, and I was wondering about, you know, if I were to try and implant something with, with 
to a follower of Christ? You know, what do I want? You know, do you want to go and, and learn? Do you want to go to a Bible college and, and learn a lot of information? What, what would I try and impart to someone if I had a school of whatever? And what I would want to impart is you need to be like Jesus. Doesn't matter how much you know, it doesn't matter what you do. If you have not love, it means nothing. You need to be like Jesus who loved the world and gave himself for it, who was surrendered completely to God, yielded to God because he loved God. You need the presence of God in your life to transform you, to make you like him. That's what we need. And we can get so caught up on what we do and what we say and what we learn and we lose what we are supposed to be. And that is like Jesus. And the ark represents the presence of God in the midst of them. And that's what we need in the midst of our lives is the presence of God transforming us, changing us, making us like him. And when he makes us like him, then things are right. Then the victory is won. Then the power of God is seen and it has impact. Why? Because it's the right motive. It's the right, it's coming from the right source. And so the things that we need to learn from these chapters ultimately falls into the presence of God in the midst of them, doing the work in them and blessing them because of it. And that needs to be something that we take to heart and we have as a part of our lives. <clears throat> Let's pray. Father, it's so cool to see the miraculous things that you do, but what's really exciting is to see how you are at work in the midst of your people how you prepare them, how you remind them, and then how you go with them and before them. And Lord, we know those things that happened to Joshua and the people are there for us to learn and recognize how they are happening and working with us. Father, they're there for our learning. They're there so we can gain insight into how you work and to what you are doing. And Father, I pray that you would help us all here to, to recognize and see you and submit to you, God, and surrender to you. That we'd allow you to be our commander, that we would bow our knee to you, that we would acknowledge you and see you in our midst and live accordingly. Lord, that you would receive the glory, that you would receive the spoils of our life, that you would be honored and worshiped. Thank you again, Lord, for this time. I pray you would <clears throat> allow these things to be rich in our hearts and memories. And I do ask it in Jesus' name.